0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: I think when you're talking about investing in the future, you have to be talking about youth because the future belongs to young people. And when you talk about youth, you need to talk about those who have um, disadvantages, not just those who are succeeding and doing well. Um, there are a lot of people that um, don't quite fit into society's norms. They slip through the cracks, become marginalized, and get lost. So, lost youth. Um, this is a panel of professionals who work with lost youth, lost youth in a number of different uh, capacities um, Working to help them thrive, and i 'm sure you guys haven't all read through your programs yet, so i 'd like um, each of the panelists to take a minute to introduce themselves and say a little bit about the kind of work they do and the population they work with. Laura
2: Good morning. my name is Laura Bishop, and i 'm a full- time substitute teacher for san diego county 's Office of Education Court and Community Schools. I recently um, obtained my Master of Arts in Education with a focus on learning and teaching and a master's thesis on insecure maternal attachment during infancy as a risk factor of male juvenile delinquency. Um, I am extremely passionate about this special population and I'm excited to be here with the other amazing panelists and our amazing moderator. And I look forward to sharing my um, passion with you guys today.
1: The schools you work for, the The juvenile court schools, those are kids that are incarcerated.
2: Yes, so with the juvenile court schools, those are the students that have been incarcerated at one of the juvenile detention centers. And the community
1: schools are not your local, like, La Jolla High.
2: Exactly. The community schools are students who have either been referred by social service agencies or probation. So they have previously have attended regular traditional schools and, for whatever reason, either uh, truancy, social factors impacting them from actually... Being successful in those schools, they've found alternative arrangements with these community schools through um, the county office of education. Okay,
1: just Thank wanted you. because I wasn't sure that everybody would know what those were. Thank you. Okay.
3: <laughs> Good morning. I'm Debbie Rodriguez. I think I'm the matriarch up here in terms of experience, maybe or years in the field. Um, so I've spent more than 30 years in health and human services um, in a variety with a variety of populations and in a variety of settings. Much of it youth, not all of it youth. I've worked with um, young people who are homeless, um, who have challenges of mental health, who are addicted, who are impoverished, who have been incarcerated, um, et cetera. And um, I loved hearing about the developmental goals because when I think about um, how we treat individuals, not just how we treat systems, if they're not integrated, it's not successful. And so I think about the the youth that we serve and the multiple um, risk factors that they bring to the table. And if we expect them to fit into communities' norms instead of meeting them where they are, um, I don't think that we will uh, be terribly successful for the long haul. So I'm really excited uh, to speak with all of you today and to hear your thoughts on the matter as well.
0: Hi, everyone. My name is Nathan Brunetta, and I'm so fortunate to be one of those lost youth that Laura mentioned that's made it out of a broken system and found their way back to living through the heart. And for the last eight years, I've been able to have an education in holistic health for mind and body, also in life coaching as well. And more specifically, for the last three years, I've been honored to work with an organization here in San Diego called Just in Time for Foster Youth, where their mission—there we go—their mission— is to help connect these young people to a caring community like all of you. And that's so desperately needed because that's part of what propelled me out of this broken system and into this amazing future that we're all going to create together.
4: And hello, my name is Mariette, and I uh, am the founder of a, a nonprofit called Brilliance Inside because I truly believe that each and every single one of us, no matter who we are, has brilliance inside. And um, I founded Brilliance Inside after stepping into a prison about four years ago, Donovan State Prison, which is our local prison here down by the border, and, uh, and organized a TEDx event inside Donovan State Prison, and a project that was just a side gig, that turned into a life calling of not just empowering uh, the people that we consider to be no good, societal throwaways, inhumane, and sometimes we even call them monsters, um, to become the transformative and powerful, sustainable, contributing members of society that we all themselves included, of course, deserve to become. And on top of that, create that engagement with the rest of us so that we can create and heal our society's cycle of violence, which is Brilliant Inside's mission. And so first by transforming prison from being a container of violence to a creator of peace.
1: And you're working on a TEDx for this year now, correct?
4: Yes, we are. And, and actually all of our TEDx events are organized by the prison residents themselves. And the prison residents that pick that our next TEDx event is going to be a young adult focused TEDx. so Everyone in the audience will be um, between 18 and 24 years old because to engage with that community, um, the guys I work with range between the ages of um, 18 and I have youth of 65 years old as well. And, um, and But they are so committed to taking the light that they've received and sharing it and passing it forward that they, the, the next event is a young adult event.
1: And I will say that Nyla and I went to the last TEDx about a year and a half ago, and it was amazing. I, I, I would call it transformative. It was really, really valuable. So, okay, so how I'm gonna work this is I have a number of questions that, um, in getting to know you a little bit, that i put together, and I'm gonna ask a question, direct it to one of you to start, but you're all welcome to answer each of the questions and ask each other questions, make it a conversation, okay? So my first question, um, I suppose starting at the beginning, it's like, how did you get into the work that you you do? Um, Some of you have personal stories that led you there, um, but I'm especially interested whether or not you had like aha moments or moments where you had to have like personal courage, like I can do this kind of thing. And Mariette, um, I'm going to start with you because I would expect the audience right now is wondering, how it was you started a TEDx in a prison. So, you're up.
4: <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and so I laugh also at the aha moment, and you'll quickly learn why. Um, so I, uh, yeah, I don't have a personal story. I don't have any connection with prison. I didn't even consider that population um, up until four years ago. And, and that comes from me with the background um, that I do have a deep service experience of poverty alleviation around the world, and also the professional experience. I actually am one of those highly educated Brown undergrad, Berkeley MBA, all the right jobs, and that's what I was doing. I was on that track. I was living that track, and one day, one morning four years ago, uh, I was meditating like I do most mornings, and in that meditation, I heard three words that were going to change my life, and those three words were, go to prison. (laughs) Yeah. So you have a better reaction than I had because I just ignored it. (laughs) And I just, it kept nagging at me. And little by little, I was like, okay. And I actually remember the day I threw my hands up in the air. I was like, I'll prove you guys wrong. And I Googled prisons in San Diego, thinking that was the most crazy thing I've ever Googled in my life. Since then, I've Googled a lot of other crazier things. And, um, and every step of the journey has been a step of trust, because as the more I pushed this idea of way, the more I felt that deep part of me, that pure, still part of me, tell me, just trust, just go. And so in December, I'll tell you, December 5th, 2015, was my very first day inside Donovan State Prison. And um, I went to maximum security prison, and discovered a wealth of, yes, freedom and joy that I never expected. And so I was hooked, started going to prison three times a week, first through prison ministry and shadowing programs, and thinking that others might be as mesmerized as as I was about what was happening in those walls. That's what led me to go to the administration and propose we organize a TEDx event. Again, I was still working normal professional life at this point, and... um, and so, but my thing was that I wanted the event to be organized by a group of prison residents that we call the core team. So we recruited and selected eight um, prison residents to be our core team. They make every single decision for the event. Five months later, May 2015, we held our first event. And to say that it was a wild success would honestly be an understatement. It transformed the core team, the prison residents in attendance, the yard, the prison administration, the people in attendance, there's one moment that I'll just spend a second on because it's yet another aha moment for me, was at the end of the event, we closed with a big 250-person closing circle because there's 100 people that come in from the outside, engage with 100 people from the inside. And we're all in this big circle of insight sharing. And I wanted to call forward the core team that had been invisible that whole time actually running the event. And, and as I do and, and describe um, what they've done, Um, Let me say to make this, for people who've never been to prison can understand, Um, one, this is a group of tough guys. Tough guys, don't hug. And two, race is the greatest divide in prison. Crossing that divide gets risk getting people seriously hurt and killed. And this multiracial group of tough guys, as I describe the work that they've done for five months and how they've transformed themselves and the yard, fell into each other's arms in front of their peers. That... Shows the counterculture transformation that had taken place inside here and that allowed the rest to transform. And that was the moment I said, Oh my goodness, there's more for me to, to engage with here. And I put aside my professional ambitions and founded Brilliant Inside. And now we hold annual TEDx events. We have five programs, and I brought in five other programs. And there's a lot more to share later.
0: So, for me, I can go, um, I remember the moment, it was, it was nine years ago, and I had already had a career in sales for over seven years in high-pressure sales, which if any of you have had that, you know what it's like, and I remember sitting at the beach, and my life was in this turmoil. I was looking out at the ocean during sunset, and just having the deepest cry that I've ever had, not knowing what to do with my experience, knowing that something needed to change, And I recognized in that moment that there was one of two ways that I could go. I could either continue the path that I was on and be completely miserable and well-paid, or I can do something different. And it was in that moment where, to Mariette's point, I just let go and started to trust. And I knew that in order for me to really do what I wanted to do, which is to impact the world and to make it a better place, I had to go ahead and work with the population that I came from, because that was near and dear to my heart and I saw how much potential there was, not only in myself, but all of the young people. So I started pulling that thread of the heart, and I formed my own company, Kip, which stands for Keep It Positive. And it's the idea that if you have the right perspective, to Lindsay's point, then you can learn from everything. And that led me to Just In Time for Foster Youth, where I felt for the first time that I was connected to this caring community. And then I got engaged with them as a participant and then volunteer, and then staff. And I kept pulling on that thread. And as I did that, I kept understanding at a deep level that I was in the right place. And if I just kept on this path, then everything was going to work out, and the world can be a better place because I was the one that was making that difference. So that was how I got started, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
3: So I had no aha, um, but I can't remember ever wanting to do anything else, ever. And I think for me, um, it's been a cumulative um, type of situation where, um, you know, I grew up in a comfortable family. I didn't have a lot of personal strife, but there were circumstances in my life that I thought of as normal um, that included a lot of um, physical and developmental disability with people, you know, close to me in my life. But that was normal, and having them as part of my life was normal. And as, it, as I progressed through, um, you know, my days and saw that for other people it wasn't normal, and for other people um, treating, disenfranchising this population of people was normal— it just got me really angry, and it and it hurt my soul in a way that I can't really explain. And so I, I just never thought about doing anything different. And, you know, even my jobs in high school and all of the volunteer activities I did before I was old enough to work, they were all in those types of fields. I never worked retail. I never worked in a restaurant. I always worked, you know, in a nursing home, in a daycare center in a residential treatment center and so that kind of social justice underpinning that that soul hurting um, reality that people aren't born disenfranchised we disenfranchise them has just been kind of my driving force all along but no aha kind of a cumulative type of thing So
2: my aha moment was becoming a teacher altogether. I am a product of two retired teachers. I never wanted to be a teacher at all. So never say never. Um, I got a bachelor's of arts degree in criminology and justice studies. I had a goal of going into social work. Um, I was a little bit discouraged to find out and to be discouraged by others that you're never going to make anything being a social worker. But my passion was for helping people. Fast forward a few years, I struggled with my own mental health and substance abuse. And that was something I never in a million years thought I would be going through myself. I had a very good family growing up, very kind, very caring. I was fortunate. All the factors that influenced me were my own influences on my own life. And so after college, I worked, and I just thought I was going to be someone working as an executive assistant, a personal assistant, helping people. I thought that was helping people. Well, after going to rehab and finding the time that I invested in myself to be extremely rewarding, beneficial, and empowering for myself, I found my way back to helping others. So I started out substitute teaching um, while I was in the process of getting my own teaching credential. And as a substitute teacher, typically traditional schools don't work during the summer. So for me, I'm like, okay, what am I going to do? The juvenile court and community schools go year round. So with that opportunity, I'm always up for a challenge. I'm, I'm like, I'm going in. I'm going into the detention centers. I'm ready to do this. I'm going to work with uh, kids, students who really need that help. And I walked in there. It was the most challenging thing I have ever done in my life. I have six foot two guys, and i 'm primarily working with the males i 'm five two and I went in there, and at that moment, the first few days were not easy. The first few weeks were not easy, but because of the nature and the vicious cycle, students and kids, they return they come in, they go out, and you see the same kids so i 've been doing this for the past three years, and in doing that, I have seen those same kids in and out of the system i 've developed a relationship with them. When I see them outside, when they transfer to the community schools, a select few will come up and give me a hug. And those are those aha moments for me, is the fact that I've made an impact in their lives, and more so they've made an impact on my life. Thank you.
1: That that segues in really good to my next question, because I was going to ask about challenges. Because, you know, teenagers, those teen years, young adult years, they're challenging to live through. They're challenging for parents. Um, and I would think if you add that extra stress of huh, being incarcerated or you know all, all of the client mental health, all those issues, that's added stress that makes the work you do even more challenging. So I wanted to know what the challenges were um, and then how you, how you help the, the students, in your case, um, grow and succeed.
2: So definitely the challenges um, being confined in the detention center. So you have, again, primarily my work has been done with the males. You have adolescent males who are kind of cooped up that have the urge to run around to get up. Well, when they're in the classroom, they're not supposed to be getting up, and if so, it's one at a time. Asking permission. Again, not all of them will follow that, but as a constant reminder. So with these youth, It's challenging because you're in a classroom, typically 15, I think the max is 15 or 16 to one adult. You'll have officers who are outside the classroom that if need be, you can call and they will come right in. You can push a button and they'll be there, but it's 15 or 16 um, adolescents with myself. And so again, developing that relationship, that was the initial challenge in the beginning and I took um, a bit of great advice from a veteran teacher who told me, just stand back and observe. You will learn so much just standing back and observing. So initially, the teacher and me, you know, good morning, how are you? They don't want Susie Sunshine in there. (laughs) Miss Bishop is not what they want in there. They are looking at her like, "Mm mm-hmm. And so when I walk in in the morning, I do say good morning, But I also stand back and I like to give them a few minutes because I know in the morning I need my coffee, I need to wake up a little bit. And I remind myself what I need in the morning is probably the same thing they need. And then we start up slow. I acknowledge that they are in the classroom, that we're not just here to get started going right into the work that we're doing, that I care about how they're doing and their well-being. So it's good morning, how are you? And while I'm passing out pencils, I acknowledge each student. There's only 15 in there. I've been in classrooms where there's 42 students. I definitely can make it a point within the first 15 minutes to say good morning, ask how are you. Sometimes I get a good morning, Miss Bishop. I get good morning, Miss B. Hey, I get all sorts of different responses. Sometimes I get a grunt. I can work with that. I can work with a grunt. Um, We're getting somewhere. I sometimes have heads down. My goal is, okay, if we can have that head just a little bit up by the end of the period. So definitely the challenge is building those relationships with the students, being confined in the detention center. Um, I think another challenge is me being a female working with males. I have sisters. I have never had brothers. I don't know anything about teenage boys, Um, but I know they like their music, and we actually have very similar music taste. And so the music I listen to in the car in the morning um, as I come in, as I'm sitting through traffic, If they start to sing something in the class, I'll finish the words. I try to make it very PC and appropriate, but we can all appreciate um, creative freedom. So with the classroom, another strategy that I've developed and using is what I've learned through my teaching program, using a universal design for learning and differentiated instruction. These kids are all different kinds of learners. It's getting them to tap in on what draws them into learning. So you have your visual learners, you have your kinesthetic learners, you have your spatial learners. Well, being confined in the chairs, that's a challenge. So if I put something on the board, I'll read through it once or I'll call on someone to read it out loud. I then will also ask, okay, I want you guys all at the same time, go ahead so you can read it the quickest. They all love shouting out. That's their thing. They can go through and they can all try to read it. Who can read it the quickest? That's something that you can get them up, you can get them going. Stand up in your seats. I was doing an English class where I was covering for the teacher, and the challenge was we were going to be working on um, sitcoms. And so with the sitcoms, we were working on our acting. And one of the things was to express um, something that she had prepared on the board in your sexiest voice. Well, there's 16 males and me. So 16 males with their sexiest voice, they wanted to go through and they all took their turns doing it. And then they go, "Miss Bishop, your turn. And I'm like, okay. And so I'm always, again, one for a challenge. And I'm always one where I will meet them halfway on any assignment. We will get through it together. So after I finished doing mine, they're all like, that was not sexy. They called me out on all of that. And they were not impressed with mine. But the idea was we all had a good laugh together. So at the end of the day, it's building those relationships with the students and finding the way that you can work with them.
1: Anybody else?
3: (laughs) I'll I'll just say that I think an enormous challenge probably for all of us and the people we work with is the um, stigma that's still really attached to so many of these challenges and this tendency through really misinformation to blame the victim. And so um, a lot of the youth that we're working with and adults that we're working with, kind of by the nature of um, their illness or their circumstance, have burnt a lot of bridges. And what anybody needs uh, more than anything um, is hope and a um, a vision for the future and one person at least that just will um, support them unconditionally. And when you've burnt most of those traditional bridges, um, it's really hard, you know, to come to that. So I think those are more global challenges that we probably, you know, all face that, again, overcoming stigma um, and and stopping the the victim blaming.
0: Uh, I know for me when I was growing up in school, one of the things that I hated to hear was, you have so much potential. That's all I would hear. You have so much potential. And it drove me crazy because I couldn't see it. And when I work with young people now... It, that's what they experience, is they don't see the potential that they have. And so I think for me, that's, that's been, been the biggest challenge, uh, but also the greatest reward, because when you do get to work with them in a very present way, and you can reflect with them powerfully, their many wins, they start to see that light within. They start to see their potential. And then there's this pride in who they are and what they can do, and then this envisionment of where they can go and take their life and it's, it's so rewarding, because then they can say, I have so much potential, as opposed to you saying, I have potential.
4: I would say that to heal and to grow, these people need the exact same thing we do. Because they're human beings, just like the rest of us. And for me, what that means is that they need the safety and the nurturing, unconditional love that comes when you treat people with dignity, respect, and honor. Because so often, we're very quick to realize the importance of physical safety. But we often lose sight of the criticality of psychological safety. But if you check in with your own life, if you haven't done so already, just check in and realize how often have you been able to change your behaviors, change your thoughts, change your circumstances if you hadn't felt safe. It is impossible. And so even when our situations are difficult or destructive or whatever version that is for you, until you feel safe, you will not be able to change them. And yet when we do feel safe, we're able to have the courage to step into that unknown And so that's what we do. We create this safe space where people get to step into that brilliance. And for me, that brilliance is that divine spark that each and every single one of us has. And I believe that we create the safe space by seeing it in others. Now, I agree with Nathan. It's not by telling them that we see it in others. It's by having them experience that we see it in them. And when we do that, just magic shows up because the fact of the matter is, you know, when when we, each of us, and have it be the, you know, prison residents or or the at-risk youth or, or each of us, when we act up and are rebellious, it is just a, like a scream to be able and a desire of an expression of wanting to be seen and to be heard. A part of us is not being acknowledged. So can we recognize that? And when we see someone in reaction, try to figure out what is that part of them that needs to be seen and heard right now. That's how we create safety for ourselves and for those around us.
1: my, My next question has a little bit of a... Uh, personal story to start. So a long time ago, I was a PhD clinical psychology student. And full disclosure, I was all but dissertation when I quit, so I'm not a psychologist. But um, my last internship was at the San Diego Sexual Abuse Treatment Center. And some of you know, because I've spoken at previous summits, that I am an incest survivor myself. And um, that internship, boy, was that a challenging, challenging year. And I don't think I could have gotten through it if I hadn't had a really good therapist, a uh, on-site supervisor, a school supervisor, and a loving, caring husband at the time. So I have, you know, thinking about the populations you work with, um, I was and the stress they're under, and some of you have your own personal stories, I was wondering... Um, whether or not the work you do ever triggers emotional um, conflicts, issues in you, and then what you do to keep yourself um, whole and healthy. And Nathan, I want to start with you, because the population you work with um, mirrors so much of what your personal experience was. So,
0: so easy answer, yes. Uh, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's super easy to get triggered, um, For me, I've decided to look at triggers as opportunities to reflect on myself and to Marriott's point, what's going to create that safe and courageous space within me so I can heal. So I do have more of an objective standpoint when it does happen. Um, But I also recognize the importance of having a supportive community. You have to have people around you that believe in you and your why for what you do. Because when you do go through those experiences and when it is emotional draining, it's those people that are going to help you through that valley. And that allows you to then reach your peak again and keep going and keep doing what you love to do and believing in why you do what you do. Uh, The other thing I think is really important is when you do recognize those triggers, don't run from them. Because when you run from them, it's just going to create this big heavy train that you have to drag for the rest of your life until you decide to use it as fuel and then go forward. And that has been really powerful in my own experience. So I always encourage people to ask yourself, what can I learn from this? What meaning can I pull? Because the moment something has meaning, it's not negative anymore. It's actually really positive and it propels you forward.
3: So my interesting, it it, it wasn't really personal triggers, but it was uh, triggers as it related to my kids, and so uh, when my kids were kind of in that um, you know middle school high school going off to college period of time, I was working a lot with mental health and addiction, uh, particularly in um, that kind of age group and um, until I figured out that I needed to build some type of firewall uh, between the work I was doing and the type of mom I wanted to be, um, I was convinced that every time you know one of my kids came home and slammed the door to his bedroom and didn't want me to get involved, that he was clinically depressed and needed some type of intervention. Or when there was a party on a Saturday night and um, a group of their friends were drinking beer underage, you know, I was convinced that um, they were all going to become addicts. And it You know, it sounds humorous, but it really affected them, and it made them almost very angry about the work I did. You know, Mom, just because of the people you work with doesn't mean drinking a beer is going to make me an alcoholic. And I really needed to develop a balance between what I knew was possible um, and the types of kids that I had and the types of support they needed from me to keep the family healthy during those times.
4: So I'll... um, So I feel like we can tag team because I, so like Nate said, (laughs) Nathan said, Mm -hmm. um, I, so to me with this question, it's like, there's the, seeing how the things weigh us down, because let's be honest, I have developed a lot of protective and healing activities for myself because I work in a very dark and violent environment. And, but what I, um, see is that as much as that darkness and destruction can be a burden for me, it's been a blessing I have learned so much. And I always say, even with my Brown undergrad and my Berkeley MBA, my greatest teachers, bar none, live in prison. And one of the greatest things I've learned from them uh, is that I've been able to learn how to love more deeply and more unconditionally. Because the very first day I stepped into prison, I met this guy, and he's telling me, like I said, his life story in about 15 minutes, including the gang affiliations that he had and the fact that he murdered seven people and attempted murder on two others. So try hearing that without judgment. And about a year later, excuse me, I'm um, talking to someone, and for the very first time, I usually don't know what the guys are in for, and for the very first time, this guy tells me that he's in for aggravated rape, which in my worldview is worse than murder. And I felt myself, bam, push him away and complete, create complete distance. And he was no longer part of my world. And then I like, kind of asked myself, can I allow the human being I was seeing right before I knew that come back in and receive that and bring down that wall? And then uh, shortly after that, I met someone else who described to me one of the most heinous crimes, I would arguably the heinous crimes I've ever heard in my life that he's done. And yet, in each one of these people, I saw a human being that was craving to be loved. I saw this child that needed to be heard. I saw this spirit that had been stifled. And when I was able to see the human being, the child, the spirit, well, I'm able to love both extremes of that individual and the entire spectrum in between. And that's, I think, where... Magic happens because when I am able to see the brilliance in someone, well, guess what? They live into that brilliance. And then they become unstoppable and become that light and be felt, feel compelled to start sharing it with everyone. And so that's the magic I get to witness every day. And that's why, to me, this darkness and this destruction and this violence has turned out to be a gift for me and hopefully with, for everyone that I have the joy and pleasure of engaging with.
1: You wanna?
2: I can just add one uh, thing to that to piggyback off Marriott. That's I see the kids and I see them as children and I hear as much as I try not to what they've done. And some of it is extremely heinous, way over anything I can imagine. But at the end of the day, that is someone's child. and. Before I walk in at one of the sites I'm at, it's the last classroom. You walk through the main gate at the front. You go through security at the front. You get your key. You go through another three security doors. Walking all down the hallway to the last door on the left, there's a little sign, and it says, imagine if this were your child. And I look at that every time, and I do. I'm like, this is someone's kid. And they're still a kid, even regardless of what they've done they're a child. And it's, it's hard sometimes when you hear the things they've done, you do look at them different. It's human nature. But they still have room to grow and change. And I think I take those triggers and the negativity and you look at the bright side of it and what can you do with it from here on
1: out. Okay. This one for you, Debbie. Mm-hmm. There are so many ways that we can invest in the future. We can have, you know... Um, time, energy, money, and there are a lot of people in the audience today who have a lot of influence um, in society, setting policy, raising money, volunteering, networking. You have the longest view on the panel and worked in a, a variety of settings. What would you say the social agencies need most to um, to be successful?
3: You know, it's so tempting to say that um, we're all under-resourced and that money is the answer, um, and I won't say that it isn't an important um, part of the equation, but, but I think for me what's, what's been most challenging over the long haul is that um, when you're talking about the individuals that we're talking about, um, one system isn't the answer. They need multiple resources, and we as a society have developed um, resources in a very siloed, a siloed orientation. So whether um, it's hunger they're dealing with, whether it's criminal justice, whether it's education, uh, whether it's mental illness, each resource is, um, is, is applied for separately, is um, accessed separately, is funded separately. And that's not the way our lives are. You know, we're complicated beings in the best of circumstances. And so we're talking about um, individuals and families who are already challenged and they have to go to 18 different places to try to find uh, the resources that are necessary. And similarly, that I think hinders the type of collaboration between agencies like ours because the funding streams are different and the policies fall under um, a different organizational structure. And I long for this, um, this scenario where all of those funding streams and policies are braided you know, in a way that makes sense for people so that, you know, if individual A fits kind of this general profile, we can expect that these are the types of resources he or she are going to need and that there's one place to go, one kind of general contractor that can help that person or family navigate all of that because it is really complicated and more people than not give up which is why we know that less than 50% of people with a diagnosed mental illness ever access services, Um, why people with an addiction disorder, when they're finally ready to admit that they need help and seek it, then are told they have to wait three, six, nine months before um, treatment is available. And guess what? They're not waiting. So we've lost them. Um, so it's, it's that kind of silo orientation which flies in the face of the, this integration of developmental goals that we're talking about that I think is the biggest hardship on us as providers and on the consumers of our services.
0: So for the last three years, I've done strategic partnerships at Just In Time. And to Debbie's point, it's really all about connecting I mean, whether you're a volunteer, an investor, a young person, you have to reach out, you have to connect because I can speak for myself, when I had to tell my story to multiple organizations to get the services that we all deserve, it's, it can be draining. And so to be able to come to a place where you can get the resources that you need and find what you're looking for, it, it, makes, so much, it makes things easier, but it allows you to start breaking down your own barriers and your own walls And being in the organization, I've seen so much profound connections happen just because we don't live within this box at just in time. It's how can we think outside the box? How can we create the community solution? Because it's not just one organization that's going to do it all. It's not one person that's going to do it all. It's all of us coming together. And so I'd say the biggest thing that organizations could do is just to connect and just to give everybody a little secret – Mine is number 17 in the booklet about partnerships, because that's where all that change is going to happen, is if we all come together and make it happen.
4: And I'll t- touch upon three things lightly. Um, first of all, for us, you know, yes, like, you know, the fact of the matter is like every social impact organization um, the financial piece is a big piece, and for me, the business person to run an organization that doesn't have a revenue-generating component is actually really challenging. It goes against a lot of my kind of upbringing and ethos, and um, and so I've had to adapt a lot of kind of how I see the world and 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 engagement with the world because of that, and and you know and you know God provides us great opportunities to grow because just recently the rules at Donovan have changed and we're no longer allowed to charge for tickets for for TEDx events, which means. Now we have to find sponsors for the events. So not only do we have to find the support of the facilitators and all the people that come in and run the programs, now we even have to find the sponsors for the for the TEDx events, you know. And um, and so that's that to me is is a powerful area of growth right now. You know, the second thing I, I wish to bring forward is um, is I forgot my second thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes, I remember it now. Um, I just had to let it go. Um, is, you know, as a fact of that matters, one of the things I, I love to do is, is sharing these stories with people. Uh, because not everyone has the ability, though I, everyone can come to prison with me, by the way, all you have to do is reach out to me, but not everyone has the ability to come to prison and, and engage in, and, and connect with that community. But everyone has the ability to hear the stories. And so I love being in environments and places where I get to share those stories and, and allow at least through me that these guys get to be teachers for you too. And and the last piece I'll add is also has to do with connection, which is ultimately what I stand for, is about creating that connection. You know, I talk about brilliance inside standing for a conversation between disconnected worlds. And so allow yourself, have the courage and the vulnerability to go connect with someone or a group of people that you haven't connected with. Because what I will guarantee you, okay, for having worked with end-of-life AIDS patients, for having worked with veterans, for having engaged with the homeless, for having lived in slums, for now spending three to four days in prison, I will guarantee you the lessons you will learn from that will pale, will put everything else to shame as to what you can engage with and experience. So I now bring lessons to corporation of team leadership and team engagement that come from how we ran our TEDx event with a bunch of multiracial tough guys. That's the power of cross-connection between our worlds. That's why I'm so passionate about creating these conversations between disconnected worlds.
1: And I'm going to say we just have a few minutes left. So is there anybody in the audience who has questions?
4: So I'm a mom of a 15, 13, and 9-year-old, and they attend public schools, and you know, they often will interact with kids or even you know, bring kids home that I know, from my perspective, um, have some issues in their home. So I'm wondering if you have an actionable step for me as a parent to engage those kids and while they're in my presence, let them know they're special but also for me to kind of dialogue with my child about how they can make them feel special and kind of bring them along without um, looking down or or
1: that sort of thing.
2: I can touch on that. Yeah, Yeah, so working with um, youth and from my own experience as well, I feel it's extremely important and it's the strategies I use in the classroom with those boys and it's just it's almost like an onion you're peeling a layer so it takes time but really getting to know the kids that your um, children hang out with and so maybe doing an activity or going somewhere I know parents aren't when the teen years are not cool mm-hmm. but um, and I remember my parents were not cool for a long time now they are so you come full circle but with doing that it's important just to be there and just to have those uncomfortable conversations with your kids, and it's, it takes time, and, but just to be open, be available, and your kids, they want to be heard, and they want to connect with others, and you can still be the cool mom, the cool dad, but still have your own values and stand firm with those values. Just be there, and just, I think the first step is just, you know, sitting down, even if it's a five-minute, two-minute conversation with those new friends then maybe next time it's five minutes, then seven minutes, and it keeps going on. And just kind of observe, like what the ma- uh, veteran teacher told me. Stand back and observe, and you'll learn so much about them. Thank you.
4: And create that safety. Again, it is, it, you will be amazed. All you do is create safety with them. And, and suddenly your home becomes a place, a safe haven, where they get to be them. And, and I'm getting chills. That is the greatest gift that anyone can provide anyone. And so create that safety, see the brilliance
5: and see them transform.
1: Okay, I think we're gonna take one more question. I think we only have about two minutes.
5: Okay, so my name is Carolina (laughs) Uya, and I work with Access, Inc., Youth and Immigration Services. We have three um, funding streams, Department of Violence, um, Department of Labor, Department of Violence Against Women Act, as well as Microenterprise. And so my question is, suicide is the second leading cause of death for 10 to 35-year-olds. And as of 2015, 88% of the psychology field is white, and only 4% look like me. So as a result, there is an extreme deficit in culturally competent mental health services. So my question is, what does social innovation look like in addressing this disparity on a micro and macro level? And then my second question, um, especially for you, uh, Debbie, um, having HHSA experience, is uh, we are a county of San Diego Live Well partner. And so we as you know, it's uh, focused on creating a healthy, safe, and thriving San Diego county. So what do you believe we could do to leverage the leadership and infrastructure that's being built, um, especially when it comes to partnership, to address mental health stigma? Um, and then the last question is in regards to credible messengers. And I'm just putting them out here, but it's there's a credible messenger movement within the juvenile justice system. So how is that being leveraged among the programs that you guys have created in the prison system? So whichever one you want to answer, I'd love to hear.
0: And, and this is why
3: there'll be a fifth annual global summit next year. <laughs> So very quickly, I, I will start with the second question that you asked. Um, oh, my gosh. Hold on a minute. So, so oh. oh, you're there? Yeah. I second so I, I think, um, you know, one of the best ways to create um, credible, meaningful, culturally competent change is to engage the community and consumers of those services or potential services in the planning. And we just, we, we don't do that well. So those of us, we can have the best of intentions in the world, but if you're talking, for instance, about homelessness or trafficking or immigration reform and we're not engaging the consumers or potential consumers of those services from those communities in those discussions, we we should be called the people in the ivory tower that are making decisions for other people because that just isn't the way it's done. The best programs in this community and other communities were were literally developed by users or parents of users of those services sitting around a table somewhere struggling um, to to answer the questions about where where can my kid go, what can I do? And I will say also that from a uh, professional um, and diversity and inclusion perspective, we have an educational, we have, we have a professional um, um, portrait of our work that is, um, it, it's marginalized in and of itself. So, you know, you talked about, um, Laura, not thinking you weren't going to earn a lot of money. The work that we do tends to be deprofessionalized and under paid and so particularly communities of color for whom many might be engaging in higher education for the first time and taking on a lot of loans in order to be able to do that they're going to be looking for career options that pay them back for that investment and this is perceived as not yeah. one of those professions and so we're we're not seeing Um, a diversity of people entering schools of social work, schools of education, getting advanced degrees. And it's, it's
4: terrifying. I am a white woman, highly educated, who like doesn't even know what pot looks like, you know, and has had no involvement in the criminal justice system. And yet here I am doing this work in prison where 80% of my guys are black. Okay. And, um, and why? Because my role is not to define and develop a program. My role is to hold a safe space where they get to become who they're meant to become. And as long as soon as I'm able to step into that role and realization that I am here to Create the safe space so that it is the perpetrators of the cycle of violence who actually can be the ones that heal that cycle. That's when I've stepped into who I'm meant to be. And that's what I want each of us to be. Not try to think that we're here to solve the problem. Allow those who are at the center of the problem to solve the problem.
5: Yes, thank
2: you.